Stanford University. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Abbas Milani. I direct the Mogadam Iranian Studies program here at Stanford University. I'd like to welcome you all to our event. Uh, I would like to, before uh, introducing our tonight's speaker, make one announcement, or one and a half. One is about our event next week. Uh, next week, we are uh, hosting Iraja Pezeshzad, who's going to talk about his novel, My Uncle Napoleon, easily the most widely read work of uh, satire in Iran. The work is translated into English. A brilliant English translation of it is available by Dick Davis. But unfortunately, his talk will be in Persian. So if you don't speak Persian, try to learn. Uh, you have a week. Uh, it will be good use. Uh, the other uh, half announcement is that if you're not on our uh, mailing list, uh, there are places where you can sign up. and. Uh, this is for the purpose of uh, receiving our announcements about our events. Uh, the Mogadam program organizes about 20 of these events a year, uh, and we can let you know about them way in advance, and you can uh, plan to attend. Uh, tonight's uh, guest, uh, Roger Cohen, uh, I think is one of those cases where truly, with no hyperbole, uh, one can say he needs no introduction. I'm sure many of you have, if not all of you, have read, have read his columns in New York Times. And tonight, I found out, driving him from the hotel to here, why he knows so much about Iran. There is a key to the mystery. He's British. Uh, and as all good Iranians know, the British run the world. And we now realize how he has come to save New York Times. Yes, he, uh, he is acting on behalf of the British. He was born uh, in London. He went to school at Oxford. He's been in New York Times for 20 years. Uh, he has had different positions, including uh, uh, international news editor. He was the editor, international news editor, during the 9-11. Uh, from two years ago, he began writing uh, uh, a column, a bi-weekly column, uh, that have become a favorite reading, a must-reading for anyone interested in Iran, and uh, a favorite reading of anyone interested in international relations in the world. Uh, two weeks ago, I was in Virginia, uh, and I was telling my sister, who teaches at Virginia, uh, that we have Roger Cohen coming. And he told me that on more than one occasion, reading Roger Cohn's essays have brought tears to her eyes. He says the idea that someone has this level of uh, humanity and this level of uh, audacity to speak truth to power has revived her hope in humanity. And those tears, she said, were tears of joy. I think uh, uh, she speaks for a lot of us uh, who uh, find him enormously astute and uh, unfailingly fair, uh, both to those who have suffered from Iran's revolution and those who live in Iran and those who want to bring democracy to Iran. Uh, making all these three uh, constituencies happy is a very, very difficult job, but I think he has done a masterful job of doing it. 
Uh, we are very grateful uh, that he has accepted our invitation. I would like to have a special word of thank to Mr. Hamid Mogaddam, who has uh, uh, also uh, in, uh, come tonight. It is his vision that uh, launched the Mogaddam program and has made all of this possible. Mr. Rajakon. Good evening, everyone. Um, thank you very much, Abbas. Um, it's always a great pleasure to be in California. In fact, every time I arrive here, I wonder what I'm doing on the East Coast. Um, I guess I'll work that out one day. Uh, in fact, as of three years ago, I am a, a US citizen um, and had the distinct pleasure of pulling the lever for our president um, in November in my first vote in this country. But it's true, I, I, I do carry a lot of England in myself. Um, well, uh, when a couple of months ago, I received a generous note about my Iran columns from Dr. Abbas Milani, <clears throat> I was unsure whether to view it as an instance of Tahrof. How else from so eminent a scholar of Iran was I, a humble amateur in matters Persian, to understand such unmerited praise. Tarof, as you all know, is the ceremonial insincerity woven with intricate delicacy into the tapestry of Iranian life. In Tehran, I'd heard the story of a foreigner arrested for stealing after being denounced by a shopkeeper who'd repeatedly refused to take his money. In due course, I had great difficulty paying my interpreter, who waved away my inquiries as to what I owed him with airy dismissal of the very notion of any payment. Naturally, after an elaborate reciprocal tar-off, I was getting the hang of it by the end of my three-week stay in Iran, we ended up haggling over pennies. As Christopher de Belleg has observed, Iran is the only country where hypocrisy is prized as a social and commercial skill. But no, Dr. Milani's praise and the accompanying invitation was sincere. And here I am, still feeling a little like an imposter. Forgive me. I went to Iran a long time ago, in 1973, but I was on the hippie trail through the land of the Shah back then, and my memories, although fond, are sketchy. Back I went at the beginning of this year for what turned into a three-week stay, mainly in Tehran, but also in Qum and haunting Esfahan. I say three weeks, but the truth would be closer to three months, since I've been journeying through Iran in my mind ever since I set foot there in late January. An Iran obsession is probably nothing new. Many have known the condition over the past couple of millennia, but I've wondered about my own, and wondered even more at the often violent reaction to it in this country. I confess that I like countries that are artful about life and convey its inescapable tragedy in their culture. It's occurred to me that Italy and Iran 
I lived for Italy in a while, ha for a while, have some things in common. Taroff, after all, can be a whimsical circumvention of unpleasant matters, as well as a form of flattery. It's a disguise. And what else are the dolce vita and the bella figura but playful triumphs over life's hardships, disguises that keep difficulty at bay? In any ancient and oft invaded land, dissimulation becomes important. It becomes, in a sense, the best revenge. Iran and Italy, coveted lands with their share of foreign oppressors over the centuries, share the ability to dress their knowledge of pain in lovely artifice. Although I have to say that Italy is better, rather better, at frivolity, which is not surprising in the circumstances. It's impossible, I think, to understand Iran without understanding its knowledge of subservience and its quest for independence. The now 30-year-old Iranian revolution was, of course, about many things, but central to it was the rejection of foreign ideology. The Shah was America's lackey, the West's lackey. The revolution would be about establishing a theocracy based on the sheer interpretation of Islam, which had always been a means to set the country, Iran, apart from predators, often Sunni predators, to East and West. It has lasted, which was not inevitable. I can think of many reasons for the revolution's endurance, one of which was Saddam Hussein's 1980 invasion. Advocates of using force against Iran need look no further to understand how the country would react today. But of course, one constant pillar of the revolution has been now the, the now ritualistic and emotionless chant every Friday at prayer, which I heard while I was there, death to America. It's a slogan that should be dropped. Iranians are far too sophisticated for tired one-liners. But between Tehran and Washington, the wounds are deep, the mistrust rampant, and the difficulties are such that there can be no guarantee. Indeed, there can only be the anti-empirical, if ardent, hope that President Barack Obama's skillful opening gambits will achieve a US-Iranian rapprochement that would change the face of the world. With no other nation on earth does the United States have so complete so elaborate a non-relationship. We have an interest section in Havana, Cuba. We talk to the North Koreans, even if we talk in circles. We have an embassy in Burma, for what that's worth. We have one in Harare. Only with Iran do we have the absence of any form of sustained or normal interaction. And Iran, playing this vacuum like a chess grandmaster, has become what it is today, the most influential country in the most sensitive area of the world. To state the obvious, this situation is both undesirable and dangerous. In some ways, in fact, it is just plain mad. A generation and a half of State Department diplomats has not spoken to an Iranian. Nick Burns, the point man at State on Iran between 2004 and 2007, told me he was never not once authorized to have such a conversation. And he's supposed to be leading the policy. 
We are traumatized. Iran is traumatized. For 444 days back in 1979 and 1980, images of wild-eyed Iranian men holding Americans hostage and garbage being transported wrapped in the American flag were beamed nightly into homes from San Francisco to South Dakota. Iran got into the American subconscious in ways that have proved insurmountable. In a mirror image of this trauma, events including the 1953 U.S.-assisted coup in Iran and the 1988 shooting down of an Iran air passenger plane with 290 people on board inhabit a deep, dark place in the Iranian psyche. The question today is whether time and circumstance have ushered these wounds to a point where they are susceptible to healing. Obama was just 18 at the time of the hostage-taking, so he's not burdened with its baggage. He carries, rather, I think, a conviction of the world's interconnectedness. He also has a lawyer and a former social worker's inclination to bring people together. Iran, I understand from reliable officials, is a subject about which he is passionate. He is driving the current pursuit of an opening. As Dr. Milani has noted in an important essay in the Washington Quarterly, no tar off here, the president brings some intangibles to the table that carry weight in, in Tehran. The first is a middle name, Hussein, the very name chanted on the day, Ashura, when Imam Hussein's martyrdom in the year 680 is recalled in passionate, chest-pounding lamentation. <clears throat> the second is his Afro-American identity, problematic to a revolutionary regime that, as President Ahmadinejad's minimally tailored look suggests, has wanted to identify with the disinherited of the earth and marked that early on by releasing the Afro-Americans among the US hostages. Our president, in short, is disorienting, where his predecessor was simply alienating. You can see that in, that in Cuba, where the Castro brothers have set to rowing over what to do about him. You can see that in Venezuela, where Chavez goes all gooey and awestruck as he strains for a photo op with the mestizo Wunderkind. You are beginning to see that in Tehran, where debate in the run-up to the election turns in part on how to respond to Obama's overtures, and where Ahmadinejad now seems to me almost touchingly torn between his severe revolutionary obligations and his boyish desire to become a popular hero by following Chavez's example. This is a moment of flux, and in that flux lies opportunity. But there are huge obstacles. Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, the supreme leader in Iran, to whom Obama is wisely addressing his conciliatory gestures, would take a substantial risk in responding positively. He is, after all, the guardian of a revolution whose anti-Americanism has been constant. As Ayatollah Besheshti, the Islamic Republic's first chief justice, said, let America be irritated with us. Let it be so irritated that it dies. A strain of thinking in Iran still holds, believe it or not, that when regime change comes, it will come to America, not Iran, perhaps in the form of the demise of capitalism. There are many in the Revolutionary Guards, Basichi militia and elsewhere, with enormous vested interests, at once ideological and material, in the preservation of the current order of things. 
On the other side, there are people with equally large vested interests in the characterization of Iran as a messianic, apocalyptic cult, as Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, put it recently. They want to identify the mullahs as the modern-day quintessence of Nazi-like evil. It then follows logically that any dealings with them would amount to appeasement. I can't count the number of times I've been compared to Chamberlain in recent months. The spoilers, whether in Tehran, Tel Aviv, or Washington, are vocal, well-organized, and fervent. Look at the scandalous imprisonment in Tehran of the Iranian-American journalist Roxana Saberi. Look over here at current attempts in Congress to tighten sanctions against Iran through the so-called Iran Diplomacy Enhancement Act. Yes, you heard that little piece of Orwell right. The spoilers will do their best to do their worst. It therefore behoves those who believe a U.S.-Iran breakthrough would have the geostrategic significance of Nixon's 1972 visit to China, which ended 24 years of non-communication, and I'm among those people, to work hard for that elusive end. I've called my talk today Messianic Pragmatists, the Riddle of Iran. I chose that title because a core question hovering over the current debate is whether Iran is essentially a dangerous power intent on upending the current order in the Middle East by removing Israel from the map and by overthrowing Sunni Arab states, or whether Iran should rather be viewed as essentially a cautious status quo nation. <clears throat> it hasn't fought an expansionary war in 250 years, driven by calculation <clears throat> of how to preserve its revolution. For a variety of reasons, I subscribe to the second view and so believe in the possibility of a groundbreaking rapprochement on rational grounds. The apocalyptical thesis is at its core a call for military confrontation. How else to stop a mad and eventually nuclear-armed actor? The foundation of that thesis is, however, weak, as I will try to demonstrate. It's not easy to go to Iran with an open mind. Over the past several years, we've been led to view the country through a soul and sinister prism. Our view of a rich civilization and a many-faceted modern state has been narrowed. We've been encouraged by the press, neoconservative politicians, and numberless think tanks to reduce our image of Iran to this, a band of bearded, turbaned, unhinged mullahs in cahoots with terrorists running a totalitarian regime of Nazi ferocity bent on acquiring a nuclear bomb as fast as possible and reducing Israel to ashes on the way to the establishment of a global Islamist theocracy. Let me be clear, the Islamic Republic of Iran, after a revolution that defrauded many of its most ardent participants, notably those on the left of the political spectrum, is an unfree society with a keen apparatus of repression. Just ask the Baha'i who have suffered persecution. But I lived in Berlin for some years and can tell you this, Iran is no Third Reich redux, nor is it a totalitarian state. We don't even know who will win the June election. Indeed, by the admittedly abject standards of its region, revolutionary Iran offers significant margins of freedom, debate, and pluralism. 
Totalitarian regimes, as you know, require the complete subservience of the individual to the state and tolerate only one party to which all institutions are subordinated. Iran is a long way from meeting those criteria, I found. Access to satellite television is widespread, with the BBC's new Farsi service all the rage. Perhaps two-thirds of the population is under 33. They're an internet-connected generation with an ardent thirst for contact with the West. The recent death of a young blogger in prison, put there for allegedly insulting the supreme leader, is a terrible thing, but it does not change the reality of this online vibrancy. Nor does the overreaching rule of Khamenei, the Velayat Fahi, mean that the June presidential elections will be insignificant. Khamenei's absolute power is only absolute in the negative sense. He has veto authority. He cannot, however, impose his will without taking into account other centers of power, which include the presidency. So there I was a couple of months back in teeming, traffic-clogged Tehran, where distant views of the magnificent snow-peaked Alborz Mountains offer relief for the bottleneck-trapped inhabitants of the megalopolis. As a journalist, I believe that understanding is not linear. It's a composite thing, a collage made up of countless elements, some not easy to identify. Every sense is engaged in the pursuit of a fair and truthful image. There's self-censorship in Tehran, of course. As in China, everyone knows the regime's red lines. But I can say this with confidence and a clear conscience. The air you breathe in that city is neither suffocating nor suffused with fear. Or if it's suffocating, it's only because of the pollution. People talk real estate. There's been a heady boom now subsiding, reflected in endless new high-rises in northern Tehran. Brand crazy, people hunt for designer jeans or the latest Macs, available at a price reflecting the cost, a surtax in effect, of circumventing sanctions via Dubai. Headscarves fall artfully from women's heads as they enter cafes and take a very long time to be readjusted. The Iranian capital is far from dour. In fact, it's more sensual than severe. The cars on the street are Persian-made. Iran now produces 1.2 million cars a year. Don't inquire too closely about the quality. Samizdat evenings involve showings of movings, movies the regime has, ba has banned. Bookstore windows are full of poetry, self-help manuals, and frank advice on all aspects of the first years of marriage, stacked side by side. Political debate in the privacy of homes is vigorous. The unlikely truth of Iran, in my view, is that 30 years of a religious regime have produced what is, in some ways, a very secular society. Sure, the morality police are on the prowl, and humiliations of women are frequent for some minor infringements of a dress code. But in another sense, women have been empowered. Perhaps only an ayatollah could tell traditional families to educate their daughters. Of the millions of young Iranians in college, a majority today are women. They're sophisticated, aware, and ambitious. I don't believe that the laws of Iran can forever lag this reality. Where Islamist movements outside Iran dream of establishing a theocracy, a caliphate, Iran has a three-decade-long first-hand experience of what religious occupation of the political sphere means. Been there, done that. It's coming out of the far side of zealotry through a continuous dialectic in which Sharia law confronts the exigencies of modernity. 
Far from a land of unbridled theocratic extremism, Iran is forever adjusting compromises between Islam and forms of pluralism. There will be no winner in the Middle East between Western liberalism and Islam. There will be trade-offs. Tehran is a good place to begin to understand that. I said a little about Iran's psychology and America's place in it. Let me say something more. An overwhelmingly young population grew up with crackdowns and shortages and the often brutal warfare of the 1980 to 1988 Iran-Iraq conflict. One million dead, the equivalent for them of the First World War in Europe. Sirens, anti-missile fire punctuated their school days and their anxious night. Iraqi rockets whistled and thudded. Buildings shook, glass flew, rationing was the norm. So when these Iranians look at the arc of their lives, they trace an upward line. They're dissatisfied, sometimes angry with the regime. They want reform. They want more democracy. They want more freedom. But they value stability above all, especially when they look west to Iraqi mayhem or east to Afghani war and violence. They are not revolutionaries. They will not rise up to overthrow a regime with which they have learned to live in an often elaborate game of cat and mouse. In short, they're pragmatic, believing their time will come if patience is shown. We, in my view, should be pragmatic in return. The one way to dash their hopes, return the regime to its harshest form, and ensure its long-term survival with a reinforced rhetoric of confrontation and isolation would be adopt, to adopt what I call the unthinkable option, a military strike against Iran. The best way to buttress these young people's dreams is engagement of the kind President Obama is now pursuing and an end to the coercive diplomacy that has led nowhere. As for the psychology of the mullahs, it too is pragmatic. As Hamane said in response to President Obama's pitch-perfect Nauru's message to Iran's leaders, we're not emotional when it comes to our important matters. We make decisions by calculation. Only in the light of such calculation can the revolution's unlikely survival be understood. It led to cooperation with Israel in Cold War days throughout the 1980s when Israel calculated its interests were best served by supporting Iran against Saddam Hussein's Iraq. This is often overlooked today. It ended the Iraq war despite Ayatollah Khomeini's vow never to end it. It averted an invasion of Afghanistan in 1998 after Iranian diplomats were murdered. It brought post 9-11 cooperation with America on Afghanistan, which was reciprocated by former President Bush consigning Iran to the axis of evil. It explains the ebb and flow of liberalization since 1979, and it makes sense of the way the mullahs have sought to avoid military conflict with the United States while of also avoiding normal relations, what is sometimes called the no war, no peace policy. Pragmatism, in my view, is even one way of looking at Iran's nuclear program. A state facing a nuclear-armed Israel with perhaps 200 warheads and Pakistan, American invasions in neighboring Iraq and Afghanistan, and noting North Korea's immunity from assault, might reasonably and rationally conclude that preserving the revolution requires nuclear resolve. As for the support for Hezbollah and Hamas, it is of course driven by ideological hostility, even hatred for Israel. But it may also be viewed as a pragmatic quest by Iran for deterrence capability. 
Americans and Israelis know that Iran for now does not have a nuclear weapon, but they also know it has the power to flick a switch and make trouble, indeed ignite territories from Iraq to Lebanon to Gaza, not to mention Afghanistan and the Gulf. Finally, even on Israel, leaders from Rasfanjani to Ahmadinejad recently have suggested that if the Palestinians reach a settlement with Israel that is acceptable to them, the Palestinians, Iran will not object. I believe such statements are a better guide to Iranian policy than the occasional annihilationist outbursts of one president, who may in any event be gone in June. Now, on the other side, what is the evidence for Netanyahu's messianic, apocalyptic cult, a form of words deployed since the early 90s when Israel first started crying wolf on Iran? Indeed, so many red lines have already been passed in the Iranian nuclear program that the phrase, in my view, is close to losing all meaning. Well, they're the outbursts from Ahmadinejad threatening Israel with annihilation and denying the Holocaust. There's the structure of the regime itself, where the supreme leader is positioned as the interpreter of God's word. There's the ruthlessness shown at moments of resistance to the regime, say in 1981 or in 1999. There have been horrendous terrorist acts linked to Iran, from Beirut to Buenos Aires, even if the worst of them now date back more than a decade. Ultimately, the revolution's credo knows no geographical limits, at least interpreted literally, in that it goes out to all Muslims and ultimately seeks to sway or even eliminate the infidel. It is a revolution in motion. None of this, however, can justify the word apocalyptic. Where's the apocalyptic element? Nor is there any evidence of a cult. Indeed, Iran's leadership structure is rather the opposite of a cult. It's a very broad constellation whose boundaries and interaction are quite unclear, much to the frustration often of policymakers here and in Europe. As for messianic, well, perhaps in theory, but adjectives, in my view, closer to the reality of three, these three decades in power include malleable, measured, and materialistic. If the mullahs are messianic, they are without doubt messianic pragmatists, an oxymoron, I know, with the emphasis on the second word. Therefore, a deal with Tehran is possible. It is also critical. Iran is a key to every Middle Eastern puzzle from Israel-Palestine to Iraq. It makes no more sense to believe that these problems can be solved without Iran than to believe that the Cold War could have been ended without talking to the Soviet Union. We tried at Madrid, we tried at Oslo, we tried at Annapolis to advance Israeli-Palestinian talks without Iran. It didn't work then, it won't work now. The trick is to push forward the Israel-Palestine talks, if we can get them going, and the, Iran, and the Iran overtures in tandem. Obama knows this. He must now stay the course set by his groundbreaking Nauru's message, recognizing the regime and acknowledging that the quest for conciliation would not, quote, be advanced by threats. The spoilers will do their dirty work. But every time there's a Roxana Seberi incident, and there will be more, and every time there's some equivalent to this ridiculous new attempt at legislation here, he should remember that whenever a bomb went off in Northern Ireland during the peace talks, 
Mitchell and Blair, now together again working on the Middle East, pressed on. When you can't solve, manage until the time is ripe to solve again. This will take time. Nothing of substance will move, I suspect, until after the June election. The multilateral track devoted to the nuclear issue will not be enough. Iran and the United States will need to get to bilateral negotiations in which everything, all the grievances and all the possibilities, and believe me, the possibilities are manifold, are put on the table. I don't believe Iran's nuclear program is innocent, but nor do I believe, as should be obvious from the above, that the Islamic Republic will bring itself down in the blind and frenetic pursuit of a nuclear bomb, let alone its use. My sense is that it will probably be satisfied with being a threshold nuclear power, something like Brazil or maybe Japan. A face-saving compromise I could imagine might allow Iran to have a small, limited enrichment facility for research purposes, heavily monitored by international inspectors from the IAEA. This may not be an ideal outcome for some, but if the past decades have taught us anything, it's that maintaining nuclear monopolies is near impossible. In the region alone, Israel, Pakistan, and India are all nuclear-armed. One thing is clear to me, the broader any eventual reconciliation between the United States and Iran is, the more satisfactory the nuclear outcome will be. I can imagine an accord after long negotiation that would assure Iran of its security, remove its fears of regime change, allow limited, highly supervised enrichment, and give the country access to some of the Western technology it craves and needs. Its oil and gas industries are falling apart. In return for concessions from Tehran that would include an end to military support for Hamas and Hezbollah, assistance in Iraq and Afghanistan, and something like Malaysian-style non-interference in Israel-Palestine. Most Iranians, I found, want the country to get over the official fixation with the great Satan, us. I've been moved by the many letters of support I've received from Iranians in the diaspora who do not like the regime, but who like even less the caricature of their country as some quintessence of evil. For it is a country that despite everything, and even despite sometimes having lost everything there in 1979, it's a country they still love. As one of them wrote to me, the 1979 revolution remains the most traumatic moment in the lives of generations of Iranians. We are dispersed around the world, aging in exile and isolation. Children separated from parents and grandparents by oceans and the tyranny of visa requirements. But despite the personal loss and sometimes daily heartache, how do I answer my kids when they ask, why doesn't America like Iran? Despite all this, many of us recognize that the Iran depicted in the United States is a far cry from the reality of the country, even under the mullahs. Iranians who dare to speak out, and there are still too few, are accused of being apologists for the regime. You are saying what many of us would like the world to hear. I've had many such messages, and in Iran I met with Ruzbe Piruz, an Iranian whose family lost everything in 1979. Raised in Canada, educated here at Stanford, at Harvard, and at Oxford, he's now, to his family's consternation and horror, 
in his late 30s, back where? In Tehran, because he believes so passionately in engagement. He's running an investment fund, and he's raising money to start a business school of the highest quality, and he's urging Iran's hugely successful diaspora to get involved. Yes, if you believe in engagement, you too can help. Everyone can help. In the end, of course, though, engagement needs to be reciprocal. It takes two to tango. Will the pragmatic Iran that I've described be pragmatic enough to get over the nest of spies fixation? I don't know. And I don't think anybody who says they know is telling the truth. What I do know and what I do believe is that the moment is propitious. Iran's economy, now largely broken, its sophistication, very great, its pride, justified, its strategic goal of regional power, even its revolution at this stage, demand that the American impasse be overcome. Two great nations, and the United States and Iran are both great nations, can disagree while having a normal relationship. What else is the US-China relationship? Iranians, in their great majority, desire greater freedom and respect from the world. And for that to occur, I think there has to be this breakthrough. Taboos will have to be broken here and in Iran. I've been amazed at the hostility I've encountered. People screaming at me, demanding that I be silenced, fired, exiled to Pyongyang, I know not what. It seems that an American called Cohen cannot write about Iran's 25,000-strong Jewish community, the largest in the Muslim Middle East, without being called a self-hating Jew and a man who would have been an apologist for Hitler. This is absurd. This is outrageous. And if the run-up to the Iraq war has taught us anything, it is that open debate is imperative. As Talleyrand, the great French diplomat, once commented of a disastrous incident, it was worse than a crime. It was a mistake. We have seen in recent years how mistakes can happen when a country is demonized. America cannot afford, it cannot afford another such mistake. It cannot afford a third war that will put us in conflict from the western border of Iraq all the way across the Arab and Persian world to the eastern border of Afghanistan at a time when the very cornerstone of our new president's policy is a rapprochement with the Muslim world that would in turn isolate the terrorists, a much more intelligent policy than the one pursued previously, the us and them Manichaean approach uh, to terrorism. So, if we have to break eggs to make the omelette, let us do so. The cause of an Iranian-American reconciliation is critical and worthwhile. I tell you all, the world would look very different with a normal US-Iranian relationship. Such a changed world could even get to puzzle with an occasional smile on the meaning of Tarof rather than torment itself with visions of a nuclear winter. It could see the beauty of Iran, its flowers, its poetry, rather than its threat. It could ponder Iran's riddles rather than agonize over its opacity. It could listen to the haunting sound of the Kamanche and hear again 
the words of Hafez. Although I am old, you hug me tight one night, so I arise young again at dawn from your side. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'd be happy to take questions. Yes, sir. Mr. Cohen, yeah. in light of, I fully agree with whatever you said now, in light of the short, probably very short honeymoon that President Obama is going to have and his offer to Iran, what would you recommend first to American administration in not to lose their patience and, in fact, not to be derailed? Now, since you recently you came from Iran, what would you think we should do, the Iranian Persian, outside of Iran, to help to understand the Iranian regime or any other measures that they should not lose this opportunity? Well, thank you. Uh, I, I, I believe that we have to be patient. I, I don't think these are deep problems. They've been festering for 30 years. They've been multiplied by a series of misunderstandings. There have been moments, uh, notably in, uh, at the time of the Afghanistan war, when it really seemed that progress was being made. There were talks in Geneva. Uh, but then Bush and Cheney con consigned all that to, to the trash can. Uh, I, I think Obama sees how critical it is to try to get this breakthrough. Uh, he's changed the language. Uh, he's made significant policy adjustments. Suspension of enrichment is no longer a condition for the United States in the person of Ambassador Burns to join the P5 plus one nuclear talks. Hopefully they'll get underway soon, and that's important. But I think until the June election, whose result, as I say, we do not know, but I think it's quite possible uh, that Mossavi could emerge victorious from that. I don't think most Iranians like seeing 24 European diplomats walking out of a conference when their president is speaking. Iranians are sophisticated, they're proud, they understand the world. That is not something that's pleasing to them. This doesn't mean um, that a Mossavi victory is inevitable. Uh, however, I think it is a distinct possibility. In any event, whatever the result, I think we have to, uh, we have to stay the course. We have to uh, complement public diplomacy by exploring uh, private channels. Um, and I think we have to use our allies in whatever ways we can to try to get to um, Ayatollah Khamenei and make this case. Um, Iran is relatively isolated. At the moment, uh, it is enjoying a moment when its influence appears to have extended, but that could change. Obama is changing the equation, supposing there is a rapprochement between the United States and Syria. Things are going to look rather different to Iran. Your economy uh, needs uh, Western assistance. And we are prepared not only to recognize your government clearly and unequivocally, clearly and unequivocally renounce regime change, uh, we are also prepared to usher you into an important regional role, provided you will do certain things. So I think 
the offer has to be uh, one in which we say, this is a unique opportunity. Come to the table. Everything is on the table. We're prepared to discuss everything. And with everything on the table, I think it's possible to find areas of agreement. I mean, quite simply, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, our interests are very largely aligned. Uh, Iran does not, Iran wants a democratic Iraq because that means a Shia dominated Iraq. It wants an Iraq that stays unified. Iran is now doing $3 billion worth of trade with Iraq, I learned while I was there. That's significant. So um, in Afghanistan, um, similarly, Iran does not want the return of the Taliban. Uh, there are many areas of overlapping interests. So above all constancy, let's not get derailed. There will be incidents. There will be unpleasant incidents. But I think one thing we know, that what we've had for the last period has been disastrous. It hasn't served U.S. interests. And I think in the medium term, it will not serve Iran's interests either. Yes, sir. Thank you. Well, the human rights situation in Iran is 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 terrible. It's a it's a country where you can disappear into an unmarked room and not re-emerge for a very long time. And what's happened to Roxana Sabari is appalling, as was the death in prison of the blogger a month ago. Um, but again, uh, I think the way to deal with this is not to say Iran is part of the axis of evil. Uh, we will not have any communication with it. Uh, these people are uh, incorrigibly evil, um, and uh, we will set out to overthrow the regime. That is not the way to tackle human rights issues in Iran. The way to tackle human rights issues in Iran is to set aside threats for now. Uh, most intelligence estimates put the real red line two to five years down the road. Uh, we have some time. Put aside the threats for now. Let's try to get over this trauma I described, this psychological block we both have, this way we see each other uh, through a glass darkly. Uh, let's try and set aside uh, the specters and look each other in the eye. Uh, God knows we've both made mistakes. And uh, the only way, I think, to overcome this and arrive at a freer, more democratic Iran where human rights are respected is by making that issue one of all the issues um, that we talk about. And... Uh, you know, of course, when you raise human rights with Iranians, um, you know what they point to in our actions over the last seven or eight years. So let's be realistic. Yeah, and the blue shirt there. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, this gentleman. <laughs> A lot of blue shirts. This gentleman with the moustache. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. I don't think it's uh, 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 
The question was, to what degree do messianic beliefs um, cement loyalty to the regime, given the various problems that there are in the country? My sense was that it's not uh, an overwhelming factor. I, I think uh, much more significant are uh, systems of patronage and reward that you know, function through the Revolutionary Guards, for example, who have been massively rewarded uh, by Ahmadinejad or through the Basici organization where to get a job or to attain a position of influence uh, you have to uh, join this uh, volunteer militia. I mean there are economic structures of power that uh, are well established at this point even if they're inefficient uh, and often corrupt and those do uh, cement in um, a certain loyalty. Um, you know, I don't, I think a lot of Iranians, you know, have gotten to the point where they, with adjustments, with changes, with reform, uh, feel that they can live in an Islamic Republic of Iran. You know, that is not uh, inconceivable. And there are, of course, you know, devout people for whom the religious element is extremely important. But I don't think it's the glue uh, at this point in Iran. I mean, that's what I was trying to say about a society that's post-fervor, if you like. I mean, that, and there is, you know, uh, I, I, can't, I don't claim to, to understand this uh, well enough, but it, it, it strikes me, uh, and Dr. Milani could explain this much better than I can, but there's something about Shiism which reminds me a bit, and I'm not a scholar of this either, of, of sort of Talmudic exchange. I mean, there is, there is a kind of dialectic um, in it that uh, affords a, a certain flexibility within the system. I mean, for, you know, for example, one very simple example, I mean, I think at the time of the revolution, uh, it was decreed that the commanding heights, to use Soviet terminology, of the economy were to remain in the state's hands. Uh, well, they've seen this doesn't work, so now this has been sort of adjusted to read that uh, in fact, the regime merely oversees the commanding heights of the economy, but the actual ownership. And this is a kind of, um, you know, and the temporary marital arrangements and uh, marital arrangements and, and other, you know, and, and other, other, other elements. So um, it's not, you know, it's not static and rigid. Um, and I think, you know, obviously, the citizens of Iran are aware of that. Yes, sir. Uh, okay, and then you. Yeah. But you think there could be some kind of rapprochement with Israel and Iran if they're all suffering to Iran has to be of Israel dropping the bomb on them. It could go the other way. And certainly not bombing creating weapons to harm Israel. And two, they're strengthening and rearming the mosques and the bowels with the intention of destroying the country. And it could lead to preemptive strike, which would be a horrible happening. Would you think way of avoiding this? Well, I think the way to avoid those nightmare scenarios, you, this was a question about Israel and whether there could be a rapprochement with Israel and what Israel's going to do. I mean, the way to avoid the nightmare scenario you just described, sir, is to try to get to the kind of uh, broad accord uh, that I talked about in which the nuclear program, there could be some limited enrichment, but Iran in turn for kind of rejoining the world community would, would, would set that aside. I personally, 
you know, this is a nobody knows. I, I personally, I can't see the Obama administration giving a green light to an Israeli attack on Iran any time that I can imagine today. Would Israel then put at risk the most critical, sacred relationship that it has, which is its relation with the United States? Because if Israel attacks Iran, it will be viewed by the world broadly as an attack by Israel and the United States. The fact that there was no green light would not be, would not be seen or accepted by Muslims around the world and indeed many non-Muslims around the world. So America, the United States, would then find itself dragged you know, into a third front uh, by Israel. And uh, I think that, that's a scenario that I don't think Israel appeals to. I know uh, does not appeal to Israel uh, in the least. On the other hand, uh, Israel has never accepted a nuclear power uh, in its neighborhood. Uh, it did make the attack on Syria recently and, uh, of course, Iraq in 1981. But attacking Iran, putting itself at war with Persia as well as the Arabs, is a different uh, order of things. The, I don't see any um, necessity or inevitability about um, Israeli-Iranian enmity. Uh, they worked together closely under the Shah. There was no de jure recognition, but there was de facto recognition. Israel had an embassy uh, in, in, uh, in Tehran, and there were Iranian officials living uh, in Tel Aviv. Throughout the 80s, Israel was providing technology and, and weaponry to Iran uh, in order to aid its war effort against Iraq. Um, they have never fought a war against each other. Uh, Jews in Israel, the Jewish state, is, is isolated. Iran, in its way, a Shia country surrounded by Sunni powers, sometimes feels a similar sense of isolation. So there's no necessity uh, to, or inevitability to, to this enmity. However, um, there is a strong uh, ideological uh, hatred uh, toward, official hatred toward Israel from Iran that would be hard to overcome. And I cannot see Iran recognizing Israel at any time. It, it didn't even do so under the Shah de jure. But I can see a Malaysian, Pakistani type posture where a Muslim country, Iran, does not recognize Israel, but nor does it interfere. Uh, and I think that would be okay. Iran? No, I, I don't. I don't think, I don't myself think that they would, they would actually build a device. I think they want, because once they test, they know what that could mean. And again, I think they're cautious, they're prudent. Um, I certainly don't think they would use a bomb, but I think if they produce one, um, the likelihood of, of their being attacked goes up exponentially. Yes, sir.
Well, I agree with you. It's going to be extremely difficult to row them back uh, from the point they, they, they have reached today. But if, if the incentives are great enough and if they are able, you know, if France builds nuclear power, if they are able to have whatever civil nuclear facilities they want, um, I'm not sure that it's impossible, provided uh, the regime can present uh, the various you know, considerable advantages it is deriving from that as part of some broader agreement. I think you have to recall that the problem is that while, as you rightly say, they have pursued this program under the NPT and under IAEA inspection, which continues to this day, uh, they began or they operated for many years with a secret program, which was then discovered by the IEA. So it's not unnatural that there would be a degree of international mistrust about what they're doing. So I think the Iranians, if acting in good faith, uh, would have to acknowledge that, yes, there has been a problem, and we have to solve it. Now, how we solve it um, is difficult. I mean, there are other ideas that there could be an international Consortium there, the consortium there that could that could do it with them. It, it is, it is going to be extremely difficult. And um, you know, if we don't get the get the solution I propose, and which you think is impossible, I think is difficult. Then um, my own preference um, would be to. I mean, we've contained. You know, containment is something did it with Mao's China, you did it with the Soviet Union. After all, what are Israel's, what is Israel's nuclear um, capacity for? It's, a, it's deterrence. Um, well, um, you know, and deterrence in theory works. So I certainly favor deterrence and containment over uh, attacking Iran. I mean, if, we, if there is an attack on Iran, let's think about it for a moment. I mean, it, it is the fury uh, in Iran I actually heard Elliot Abrams the other night say that if we bombed or Israel bombed the uh, Natans and so on, uh, the Iranian people would, would, would cheer us on, you know, that they would rise up. And This is complete and utter nonsense. Uh, the, re the reaction would be the opposite. And believe me, uh, the situation in Iraq would go like this again. The situation in Afghanistan would go like this. Uh, I don't know what would happen in Lebanon on the border with Israel, but probably not anything pretty. And um, uh, Gaza, Gulf states, uh, plus the, the president's policy, which, as I said, you know, the, the key to what Obama is doing. And I was in Turkey, you know, when he, I mean, he is, you know, he still sort of makes you, I find, he sort of takes your breath away occasionally when he said, uh, in Turkey, in a Muslim country, um, you know, the United States 
has been enriched by Muslim American families and by people who have lived in Muslim countries and then come to the United States. I know, because I'm one of them. And, you know, we've elected this guy. I mean, this is amazing, uh, you know, at this moment in history. And he, what, what is he doing? He is, as I said, I think, uh, you know, if I was sitting in Tehran and saw that photo with Chavez, or if I was in some cave in Waziristan, you know, listening to what Obama said in Turkey, I would be, I would be scared. I would be worried. I mean, he is, you know, a powerful message to the Muslim world of uh, rapprochement. And a war in Iran would just blow all that totally out of the water, as if we don't have enough on our plates, you know? And, and, and so I think that should be avoided. But I'm not as skeptical as you. Look, everything in this is, as I said, it's, it's, it's anti-empirical in a way to believe we failed so often. You know, why, why would we succeed now? Um, well, we do have a very skillful president, and I think, and we have, you know, we have, Iran has some issues which, which I think it needs uh, more contact with the West uh, to overcome. Yeah. Well, is Israel bluffing? Is the question. Um, mm, I don't think. I don't think Israel believes that. I think Israel recognizes that if Iran becomes a nuclear power there will be a change in the balance of power in the Middle East, and it's a change in the balance of power that it doesn't want to see for, you know, for understandable reasons. Uh, yeah, ma'am. Yes. Yes, you, ma'am. Yeah. Uh, so, I, you've described Iranian society as a society that's post-perfect, but you've also noted that uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini is kind of in this bind of wanting to support a continuous revolution and also Well, the question is, what will Hamenei do? I mean, he, uh, he, he, he has constraints on, on, on his power and, and authority and room for maneuver in Iran. And how, can, how, will, how should he move forward? Is that right? Um, well, um, you know, I think we'll have to see after June what, what the constellation of, of power is in Iran, whether Ahmadinejad is still there or not. With him there, things are more difficult because he said the things he said and Americans have listened and drawn their conclusions. And even if I think Ahmadinejad actually is quite favorable in a way uh, to a possible rapprochement with the US, it would be more difficult uh, to do it with him. Um, I think Hamenei will proceed cautiously, um, and uh, he's very wary. He still believes, I think, that America's ultimate aim is to overthrow the regime and overthrow the revolution. So I suspect you'll see an Iranian presence at the P5 plus 1 nuclear talks, multilateral talks. You might see Iran in Afghanistan sitting down with the U.S., and my bet is, but can't be sure, that he will, at some point in the second half of the year, 
agree to the start of some sort of bilateral conversation uh, with the United States on the condition that uh, this is based on what President Obama has already outlined. Mutual respect, absence of threat to the Iranian regime, and respect for Iran's role uh, in the region and the absence of threats. We've already, as I said, dropped the condition that they suspend enrichment at Natanz before we will attend the nuclear talks. So I think, I think he will, you know, the fact that he responded immediately to the Nauru's message from Obama, that he immediately, even though it was a largely hostile speech, there were phrases in it, including the one I quoted, that we think very carefully and pragmatically about what we do, that suggest he really is thinking about it. The debate, I haven't been now in Iran for a couple of months, but I understand that there really is a debate going on about what to do about the US. I'm not sure that would happen unless he was prepared to sort of entertain these ideas. So um, I think that, that that's the scenario I, I find most likely. I suspect that Roxana might be released before the election. Um, but these are all hunches, you know. I, I, I <laughs> it's, it's very hard. It's very hard to read. Uh, but, but it's critical, uh, you know. I mean, APAC and others are already, you know, mounting campaigns to again, you know, reinforce the anti-Iranian rhetoric. Netanyahu is coming to Washington on May 18. You know, he was trying to make talks with the Palestinians dependent on progress with Iran. Hillary Clinton, I think very rightly, quickly rejected that. I mean, the two are linked, but they've got, they've got to go along um, in tandem. Um, you know, Hamanei is, um, he's, a, he's quite radical, I think. I mean, I think he's deeply mistrustful of the United States. But I don't think he is immovable. That's how I would put it. Yeah. Yes, sir. You. England. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the English, the, I saw the British ambassador in Iran, and the English rate very high on the list of Ira Iranian demonology. Uh, I mean, would that, would that we did still pull all the strings in the world. It's, it was fantastic, actually, visiting the embassy in, uh, in Tehran, which is, as the ambassador, I don't know, I suspect most of you know London, but as the ambassador put it to me, it's like having 16 acres on the Tottenham Court Road in central London. I mean, it is a vast uh, complex that the embassy occupies. And there is still the table setting, or the table, uh, from the dinner uh, in 1943 uh, attended by uh, Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin, where they, um, you know, over dinner in Tehran, decided the fate of the world. And it's interesting to note that among the 16 people, I think it was, uh, at the dinner, um, there was not one Iranian. Wait, not one, which um, brings me back to you know, the essence of my argument in a way about um, the obsession in Iran with foreign intervention, foreign ideology, uh, and the revolution's essence being um, 
an end to that, an Iranian Iran, a proud Iran, uh, run by its own uh, people. I take it your question was not serious. <laughs> if it was serious, you're wrong. Uh, <laughs> uh, Iran is not being run uh, by Britain. I, I, I fear it's not being run by the CIA either or by the United States. You know, conspiracy theories, of course, you know, run rampant in, in Iran. Um, I think it's partly in the character, partly, of course, any repressive society is always full of conspiracy theories. And I was in a, I was invited to dinner while I was there, and I went, there are lots of flower shops in, in Tehran. The Iranians love flowers as much as they love poetry. And I went to buy some flowers for my hosts and uh, got talking to the guy, and he was angry about everything, and you know, he was, he was basically a kind of Shah supporter, I think. And, 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 and he said to me, well, you know, the revolution. I mean, everybody knows. That was just the work of the Palestinians. They, you know, we brought in a few thousand Palestinians and from Lebanon and I don't know where, and they did it. And I looked at my interpreter, who was a great guy, uh, who actually spent 18 years in California and U.S. citizen and gone back, U.S. Iranian citizen. And I said, the guy's joking, right? I mean, what, what's this? He said, no, 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 a lot of people believe that, you know, the revolution was the work of a few Palestinians. Uh, obviously, they're not supporters of the revolution. So then, sometime later, I was in Esfahan and I went to a dinner and there was this uh, Iranian there who actually lives in England now and but divides his time. And uh, I don't know, we got talking. I said, you know, I heard the most ridiculous thing the other night. This guy in a flower shop said to me that the revolution was, in fact, the work of a few hundred Palestinians who were imported, you know, from... He said, oh, yeah, that's true. I mean, of course that's true. <laughs> you didn't know that? <laughs> I was like... <laughs> I said, you're kidding me. He said, no, 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 it's true. So, so okay. <laughs> uh, maybe from this side of the room. Yes, sir. Did everyone hear that? Uh, whether the Israeli occupation of Palestine of the West Bank and Gaza is an impediment to uh, U.S. engagement with Iran? Um, yes. I mean, I think I think everything is linked. I mean, in, that, in one way, Netanyahu is right. I mean, he's not right to link progress with one. He's not right to say, I'll do nothing about the Palestinians until you make progress with Iran. That's unacceptable. But uh, clearly, uh, you know, I mean, it's ridiculous, the situation in Israel. I, I mean, Netanyahu, when he comes on the 18th, what's his big gift going to be? It's going to be we recognize the hypothetical possibility of a two-state solution. I mean, Likud has not even crossed that bridge yet, which has been crossed by Kadima and the Labour Party and, and most Israelis. So, um, you know, I think Obama has to put significant pressure on Israel to stop the settlements, begin to bring some kind of viable economic life to the West Bank, end the blockade of Gaza, and begin meaningful final status talks uh, with the Palestinians as soon as possible. And if that 
with Mitchell and Blair's prodding, and, and now I think even it, you know, I think State Department, Hillary Clinton has said some positive things, I think, recently. And um, I think these things have to go along together. And um, the more you know, progress there was, I think it would also focus Iranian minds. You know, they, the regime uses the Iran-Israel conflict, you know, domestically. And if it started to think the United States is going to reconcile with Syria, there's even Palestinians are making some headway, maybe we should get in on the rapprochement business before it's done to our exclusion. Now, all this will depend, you know, we haven't been very clever diplomatically, the United States, I mean, in recent years. Now, can we be, it's a very difficult, you know, juggling game to keep all this going and calibrate everything in the right way. And meanwhile, you've got Pakistan and Afghanistan, uh, you know, with all the problems, escalating problems there. So, uh, yeah, I, I think, I think the, the more progress can be made, the more helpful it would be. Um, yeah, the back. Could could you stand up maybe and just speak a bit louder? Yeah. Question is, uh, how do I see Russia's role? You know, it's often forgotten that along with death to America, one of the revolution's slogans was death to, death to the Soviet Union. Um, uh, you know, the anti-communism was, was pretty fervent, and that's proof that things can change. Uh, that is not a slogan anymore, so slogans aren't necessarily forever. I think Russia's role is very important. They're clearly involved in the whole civil nuclear power effort in Iran, their neighbors, um, and uh, I think Obama has made, again, some good initial moves in terms of seeking a better relationship with Russia, which could be then reflected in a more coherent uh, policy and strategy uh, toward Iran. I don't know what's going on you know, within the Kremlin. I sense that Medvedev is more open to the West and more favorable to Obama's overtures than perhaps Putin and the security apparatus in in Russia, the Gazprom, you know, oligopoly uh, would be. You made a very good point, which is that Russia has, in effect, a monopoly of gas supplies to Europe. Uh, this is immensely lucrative. Germany, for example, depends for 30% of its imported energy on Russian gas. If there were a serious rapprochement between Iran and the West, you could imagine very easily, uh, pipelines running from Iran to Europe, which would be in Europe's interest because it would diversify its supply. Um, so whether Russia will be forthright in helping us in trying to bring about this reconciliation, I think is open to question. Um, I don't think Russia wants a nuclear-armed Iran. So in that sense, it's in Russia's interest to help. Economically, it may not be. And if you believe that 
Russia's overall strategic aim, at least in the Putin view, is to end the unipolar world and to move toward a more multipolar world in which Moscow is one pole and Washington another and Beijing another, then again, strategically, some in Russia m might feel it's more convenient to go on embarrassing the US than resolving this problem. So I think it's kind of up in, up in, up in the air uh, for now. I, I suspect Russia will try to help, but to a limited degree. <laughs> Yes, yeah, uh, so, sorry, this, this young man with glasses, and then you, then you, sir, yeah. It's hard to, yeah. Could you stand up? It, just to hear, it's easy. That's a good point. Uh, well, you know, sorry, the question is, you know, engagement will be more effective if, if there's support, broader support in the United States and in Congress for, for that policy. Um, you know, I think in Congress, I mean, I, I think in the country generally, there is a shift uh, going on. There's a feeling that U.S. policy in the Middle East has not been successful. Indeed, it's failed. And that the Israel can do no wrong policy that was pursued under President Bush, which essentially enabled Israel to subsume the Palestinian national struggle into the war on terror and just say, Palestinian equals terrorist. We're part of the war on terror. We're fighting Palestinians, where in fact the Palestinian national struggle and Al Qaeda are quite distinct. Uh, I think America, you know, I think people see that this totally uncritical approach has not been been helpful and has not, in fact, perhaps even served Israel's interests. If you look, if you take a medium-term view, so I I I don't think there is you know hostility to some change in Middle East policy. I think there is in fact, uh, growing support for that. Now, you know, if things started to move, um, I think it would be important to accompany that with better explanation uh, to the country. And, and Obama is, is good at getting messages out when he, when he chooses to, uh, about why it is in our interest to overcome this psychological trauma with Iran and try to bring um, peace uh, to the Middle East, which has proved impossible to do without Iran. I mean, there are arguments like that um, that he could make, and uh, I hope he will make them. Yeah. About, sorry? Yeah. <laughs> 
Right. Well, who are the mullahs is the question. Well, I think there are, yeah, I, I'm not an expert, but my first of all, there are different kinds of mullahs. I mean, there are mullahs like Rasvanjani, who I think believes that Iran should have a relationship with the United States. He's a man of the world. He's cosmopolitan. There are mullahs like Hatami, who came up with the phrase alliance of civilizations and uh, who um, I think believe, you're shaking your head, but I think he does, he represents a different uh, current certainly from uh, the hardline uh, current in Iran. Uh, so I think there are mullahs of, um, you know, of many different stripes. Um, they, uh, you know, I think they're they're attached to their power. Uh, they're quite worldly. They're not in the least uh, monastic or ascetic, as far as I could see, uh, generally speaking. Um, they're astute. Um, they're not unattached to, in some cases, to financial gain. Um, they want to hold on to their power. They want to hold on to the revolution. They're human. Uh, power is hard to give up. Um, I, yeah, I, uh, you know, are they, um, you know, off in some world of their own? You know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't get that. I don't get that feeling. I mean, I, you know, I think the Shah obviously ignored all the ways in which the mosque is in touch with Iranian life, and um, I think that continues to be the case in, in, in some ways. And, um, but I think they're capable of adapting. Uh, yeah. You're not the only one. So how do we change the mindset collectively for the country, society? Yeah. How do we change that? It seems like an approach, okay, so political is fine, but there is a mindset in both sides that is not clear to me how to change it. Does it take generation? What do we do? What do we do to change that mindset? Well, we don't change it by not talking to each other. That's for sure. That's the best way never to change it. Uh, and that's what I meant by the psychodrama, the trauma uh, that is deeply embedded in both the American and Iranian peoples. And the only way to overcome that is to talk. Look, the Turks and the Armenians are talking right now. They claim they're going to 
re-establish normal relations, if Turks and Armenians can do it, if Germans and Poles, over the six million dead in Poland, three million Jews, three million, three million Polish Jews, three million Polish non-Christians, if Germany and Poland can do it, if Armenia and Turkey are talking, uh, you know, these things, if Germany and France can put an end to repetitive war between 1870 and 1945, these things can um, change. But it, it, is, it is not... It is not easy. I don't think Iranians are contemptuous of the West. I think on the contrary, they are drawn to the West. The vast majority of Iranians like the West. They like an American lifestyle. Um, I didn't, I, I've never been anywhere where I've been, hardly, where I've been treated with such consistent uh, friendliness. Um, the day of the 30th anniversary of the revolution, there were these huge crowds and I couldn't reach, get to my car. And I got on the Tehran subway, and I, we were packed in there like you know the subway in New York at at eight in the morning. And right here was a young woman in the hijab, and and uh, and suddenly she sort of drew it back a little bit, to my astonishment, and said, "Where are you from?" In quite good English. And I said, um, "I'm from New York." And she said, "Oh, I'd love to go to New York." And uh, you know, I was I said. Uh, that would be great, you know, and I said, uh, <laughs> what do you do? And she said, I'm a second-year medical student. And I said, oh, my daughter's also a second-year medical student, which she is. And uh, she said, oh, well, anyway, we had this chat, you know, and uh, that's why I say, you know, sometimes when I'm in Washington talking policy, Iran policy with people, uh, it's, I suddenly realize they're talking about an abstraction. They have no idea. They are making policy about a place they've never seen and whose citizens they've never talked to. Well, that's not good. Uh, so I don't think on the Iranian side there is, you know, any sort of contempt. I mean, of course, there'll be a few people, but, you know, radicals who maybe have that view. But I don't think it's widespread at all. On, on the Western side, as I just said, I think there's more of a problem. You know, I think there's... You know, oh, Persians and Arabs are different, you know, and, oh, and the Turks too, and they're all Muslims, and, you know, Indonesian Islam, is that the same as Wahhabi? You know, are they all terrorists? I mean, you know, it's all a bit murky, and we've got a lot of work to do in terms of doing away with a lot of that murkiness and realizing that Islam, you know, is a great world religion, followed by more than 1.3 billion people. I mean, even in its... You know, funny what, not funny way, it's the wrong, but you know, even this whole, um, you know, and here I'm treading into treacherous waters, but even this, this whole issue of the Holocaust, you know, the Holocaust looms as it should enormously in, in Europe and even sometimes I think even more so, which is strange in the United States, and that the crime was committed in Europe. It wasn't committed here. Uh, the monstrous crime, the industrialization of mass murder. And, and so, you know, we in the United States, we in the West, we think about this monstrous crime and we think never again. And we understand the link between the murder of six million Jews and the creation of the State of Israel. Well, I think Arabs and Persians 
look at it in a different way. Um, the Holocaust happened there in Europe. Um, we were not the perpetrators. And to them, uh, the state of Israel is a continuation of Western, and here I'm simplifying, Western imperial uh, designs on Muslim land um, as they see it. And so that's an example of ways in which the cultural prism uh, through which issues are looked at is very different. Now, it's profoundly regrettable and wrong that um, very few Muslims visit Auschwitz. Um, this should happen. They should understand. Uh, equally, we should make more of an effort to understand, for example, the greatness of Persian civilization. Um, so, yeah, there's work to do. I think probably one more one more question maybe and then I'll um, okay sir yeah. Right. Uh, the question's about the growing influence of the Revolutionary Guard. Um, it's, it's hard to, you know, clearly the Revolutionary Guard has increased its influence uh, and power in Iran. One diplomat I talked to didn't rule out, you know, if, if it came to a major internal clash, some kind of military takeover in Iran. Um, I find that hard to imagine, but, you know, this diplomat was a thoughtful person. Um, it's definitely a factor. You know, again, Iran is a constellation of powers. The Revolutionary Guard is one, the Basiji is another, the mosque is another, um, the various guardian councils uh, are another, uh, experts council, the supreme leader. Um, and how much relative power each one has is, is hard to discern at any one point. Uh, the Revolutionary Guards have certainly increased their power. I don't think they have veto power. You know, I think if, if Hamanei decides on a change of course and if a reformist president is elected, then I think the country will um, move in that direction. Uh, you know, it's a bad thing that so, much, so many contracts and money is being channeled toward the Revolutionary Guards. But right now, because of the dramatic fall in the price of oil, and because of the failures of Ahmadinejad's economic policies, I think there's a strong feeling that something's got to change and you're going to see a, a phase perhaps of privatizations in Iran and that, you know, that could weaken a little bit the Revolutionary Guards in the coming years. Thank you very much. <laughs>